Welcome once again to Rediscovering Your Passion and Purpose with Patty, and I am your host, Patty Stulen, and I am the Chief Pathfinder of Pathways with Patty. Well, I have to tell you up front and center that uh, this particular uh, guest that I have this week, I could see we were just talking, we will probably have to add a part two, a part three, and a part four, because I know that uh, this guest and I could talk many, many hours or days, as he said. But this week's guest is Duncan Brown. He has done his fair share of overindulgence. Strictly speaking, he's drunk more than his fair share of wine and eaten more kebabs than he cares to remember. Remember, after 20 years of overdoing it, he cleaned up his act and trained with the world's most successful stop smoking service. But that wasn't enough. He studied at Cornell University, the Chartered Management Institute, and in a windowless room in per Petersboro, all this led him to write a couple of books. Most recently, Real Men Quit, the armchair macho guide to beating booze and finding the life you want. He's interviewed scores of sober superstars and conducted research projects, which involve watching TV. Duncan gets out of bed every morning because he wants to end the harm done by alcohol. He lives near Oxford with one wife, one daughter, and two bonsai trees, as well as Morris dancing. He also enjoys falling off his inline skates. And you're probably already wondering. Baskerin is pronounced Baskarin. You can handle Brown, right? I think I can, Duncan. Thank you so much for being here today. I am excited about our time together. How are you? Oh, all I'm going to say is strap yourself in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> I do not doubt that at all. You know, um, I know that it's going to be a bumpy ride in a very positive and wonderful sense. Because just seeing your podcast that you have, uh, it, it inspires me uh, in so many ways. N not not that, that I've gone down the alcoholic road or anything, but the way that you go about everything, which everybody is going to learn. I'm just excited to, that, to, to share you with my part of the United States and the rest of the globe. Cool. I, I mean, don't, don't like ruin the mystique about the podcast, though, because... <laughs> Yeah, you know, we talk about, I, I interview people who've got sober and we talk about the kind of things that have helped them to stay sober. And do you know what? They're generally the kind of things that help you lead a meaningful and fulfilling life. You know, exactly we talk right. a lot about passion and purpose and things like that. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah, don't let everyone know that I'm just talking <laughs> generally about stuff. Yeah. Because it's supposed to be niched, you know, yeah. or niched, I think you might say, um, into the, the sober thing. I don't want people to know that I'm just giving out generally useful advice. No, that and, and that is fun. absolutely right, because everything that you talk about is life in general. And, and, and really, it all comes down to kind of what we're going to be talking about today, your story of challenges and obstacles and, and getting through those challenges and obstacles and how you did that. And uh, to shed a light on on all of those things, no matter what the challenge and obstacle is, it's still about uh, you um, taking one step forward every single day, no matter how difficult it was. So with that said, please share with us uh, your story of where you've been and where you are now. 
I had one of those um one of those days, you know, the uh bit too much wine, uh far too many cigarettes and uh you know like it was going badly. They'd even put too much chili sauce on my kebab. And I'm kind of staring into the mirror at 4 a.m. and my life's falling apart around me. And I look at myself and I have this really profound realization. Absolutely nothing changes if you spend your life staring into the mirror at 4 a.m. If you want to change your life, you have to actually do something. You have to put one foot in front of the other. So I put one foot in front of the other, walked out the bathroom door and got started, you know? So I stopped drinking, I stopped smoking, I cleared up my diet, but you know, that that wasn't really enough for me. So I trained with, uh, you know, the world's most successful stop smoking clinic. I went very deeply into the cognitive realignment that they, they teach, but that wasn't enough. I became quite obsessed with the idea of not simply how people get sober how people stop drinking and stop eating junk food but you know how they stay that way because honestly stopping drinking that is the easy bit it's staying stopped that's the real trick so that's why i've spent so much uh time recently you know interviewing sober superstars and uh, all of the research that we do it's all around unlocking what are those kind of protective behaviors uh the scientists call them recovery capital the buddhists call it the eightfold path but you know it's just the stuff that makes life worth living i guess Mm -hmm. So, so at what age did you start drinking and smoking? Well, you see, the thing is, I always tell people I started drinking um, at 15, but that is not actually correct. The first time I got flat out drunk was 15. Actually, my parents, uh, you know, they would give me a small amount of um, wine or sherry on a Sunday because they, they believed that they were um, teaching me to drink. Although, I think they probably thought they were teaching me to drink responsibly. Right. Um, I can get into all of the research about why you, why you really shouldn't give children alcohol. I, I will just skip onto that and say, yeah, the first time I ever got really, really drunk was 15. And that was kind of where it all started. You know, it was that kind of socializing as a teenager, a little bit of social anxiety, uh, you know, wanting to fit in wanting to be a part of the crowd. Um, so yeah, it was it started off all good fun and games, no problems, just having a laugh on the weekend with my mm -hmm. mates. Um, but, you know, as time went on, kind of 20 years, you know, it, it, it stretched out and it increasingly it was less about going out, less about other people and just more just about drinking, mm. more about drinking on my own and, you know, disappearing further and further into the kind of the pit. So for you, was was the uh, effects that alcohol had on you mentally and physically, is that what you found so enticing? Or was it one of those things that you were hurting in other areas of your life that you were kind of numbing out that part of it? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. And I... I always feel a little bit bad when I talk about my childhood because I'm I'm a very privileged guy. I'm very lucky. I had a I had in many ways a very good childhood. You know, my my parents are wonderful and supportive, but I did not get on with school. It was mm. just yeah, 
there's lots and lots of different reasons why it didn't really work for me. Mostly, I think it's because what they just try and do is they try and, you know, they put you in a uniform. They try and get you to write in the same way. They try and get you to, um, you know, do a nice pattern around the edge. And that's just kind of not me. Mm -hmm. I'm not conformist. I'm not particularly agreeable. If you tell me to do something, I'm almost certain to do the exact opposite. So the teachers and I, uh, you know, we had a, a few disagreements and that that made it kind of difficult for me because my parents had quite high expectations about me academically. My brother, um, you know, he did all of the stuff that, that yeah, everyone's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And that kind of left me, you know, wandering what what was I supposed to do? What was my purpose? Where did I fit? I very mm -hmm. much felt like a uh, a pig in the chicken coop kind of gotcha. thing. I felt out of place. So I, I struggled a lot at school and I I turned to things like chocolate and crisps and sweets and just general junk food as a way of escaping, as a way of, you know, distracting myself from mm -hmm. it so there was an element of of pain in it um and i obviously replaced the chocolate with with alcohol as soon as i could get my hands on it but that was a part of it but a lot of it it, it was it was a, a it was the mid 90s you know everybody was drinking it was cool i was listening to oasis and blur and pulp and all of that Britpop scene, it was all about lager and being boisterous and being kind of loud. And, you know, uh, uh, that for me was somewhere where I could fit in. That was something I could do. That was a persona I could be. Mm -hmm. and, and through that, um, through that persona, did you find it easier to interact with people or socialize or were you with alcohol? Did you prefer to be by yourself? So, yeah, I mean, that's how that's one of the, the paradoxes, I suppose, of alcohol is it makes you believe that you are interacting better with people. And there is a, a, a there are some minor effects when you drink the first couple of drinks that you might say help with social uh, interaction. And you might say the loss of inhibitions that comes with those second and third drink. You might say that helps with social interaction. But something that I have noticed since being sober is that actually once you are three or four drinks in it only increases reaction with other people who are just as drunk as you are if you are actually trying to talk to sober people you make no sense you just talk rubbish and you do it loudly and you do it in quite an obnoxious way and you know mm -hmm. i'm acutely aware now that what i thought was sociable was actually you know, the exact opposite. I mean, I was quite antisocial. And at the end of the day, I mean, if you drink enough that you fall asleep in the corner, you're obviously <laughs> not actually being sociable, are you? So, yeah, I, I mean, it, it started off, I was in, in, a, in various groups of people. Uh, our world spun around alcohol. Um, that was what everybody did. So it felt sociable. But um, as, as I grew up a bit, yeah, it, it definitely became something that I did more and more on my own. I mean, I still did it socially. I was, mm -hmm. I was quite a high achiever and uh, I ended up in lots of places where, you know, socializing was a part of the job and that was networking, all of that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And if you'd have met me at one of those events, you'd have thought I was a very moderate drinker because I would only have one glass and I would you know, be very, very on top of things when I was in public, when I was talking to people. It was then when I'd go home 
and I'd drink the, uh, you know, the next couple of bottles. That was, and I, I got to the point where I thought that was what I preferred. It was just kind of easier. Mm-hmm. Now, many, many, many years ago, I heard someone say that um, that their definition of being an alcoholic was when you cannot go a day without having an alcoholic beverage. What 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 do you find as someone being an alcoholic? Yeah, so I always uh, misquote Buddha on this subject. You know, there are as many ways to be a drinker as there are paths up the mountain, you know, and um, I, that that's one thing that really strikes me about the people that I work with. There is no single pattern. There is no, ah, mm-hmm. oh, you are doing this therefore you have a problem Mm -hmm. i mean there are a couple of indications if you're drinking almost as soon as you get out of bed then you definitely do have a problem but most of the people that i work with they don't do that they actually when i say to them because that's part of one of the diagnostic tests i do i i often say to them so do you drink in the morning and they go oh no I don't drink in the morning and I never drank in the morning. You know, I, in fact, I would rarely drink before about half past eight, nine o'clock. So I mm-hmm. would work hard, you know, I would get it done and I would be on the go till nine, sometimes 10 at night. And then I would drink. So for me, it just, it was something to do at the end of the day. It wasn't even something that happened all of the time. Mm-hmm. So I guess the short answer is that there are two main ways of drinking dangerously. You can either drink daily. Um, and if you're drinking anything more than one, two glasses of uh, anything, one or two well, units is a very interesting concept. But let's say if you if you're drinking two reasonably sized glasses of wine or two pints of beer, anything more than that a day that's flat out problem drinking. There's Mm. no question about it. But the other way is almost more insidious. That's like drinking heavily on the weekend. And that can be, uh, you know, not even every weekend. That can be every other weekend. If you actually drink heavily enough and get intoxicated enough just once a fortnight, twice a fortnight, then you are definitely straying into the territory of, of severe, if not dangerous drinking. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've heard I've heard the term. Oh, he or she was a functioning adult. I mean, alcoholic, functioning alcoholic. And the way that I that I kind of um, see that is somebody who's still able to get up, go to work all day, and do what they need to do and get through their day and and make it look normal. Is that is that the idea between when somebody says someone is a functioning alcoholic? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I would go as far as to say I was a high-functioning alcoholic. Oh, you know? okay. You overachieved. I, I had the them card and everything. <laughs> and yeah, that's exactly it. On the outside, you appear to be very successful. You appear to have it all together, but it is a mirage. And often on the inside, very broken people. But there's something kind of there's a a, a little bit more than that so most of the people that i work with are you know very successful people they're they're ceos they're you know um, groundbreaking academics engineers um i work with some people in the entertainment industry who are really you know they're doing they're doing great work Mm -hmm. but the alcohol is getting in the way it's reducing their performance 
Mm-hmm. It's hampering their concentration. It's murdering their energy levels. It's it, it's controlling them and directing their thinking in a way that they they don't want to. It massively stifles creativity as well. And what what I find is that when they stop, then they become functioning, high functioning. Then mm. they start to really succeed. And it's like somebody's taken the brakes off. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the problem. You're talking about people who who have a lot of ability, have a lot of talent. Therefore, they can get away with handicapping themselves by drinking right. quite a lot. And right. and that's that's what I'd love to get across to people. Even relatively moderate drinking will hold you back. And if you if if you find a way to either control it down to a lower risk level or you remove it from your life completely, then you will notice the difference. You will have more energy. You will have better focus. You'll be better able to concentrate and you have more time as well. And then you'll you then then we kind of see people really, really excel. Now, I I know that alcohol is, is considered a vice. But so is overeating. So is gambling. Do do you find overall that every single human being has some some vice? Yeah, and I think that's a really important point to get across to people because we sort of, I think, in a lot of people's mind, there's this kind of like problem drinking, and then there's everybody else. And uh, problem drinking is it's different. It's not normal human behavior. And I think words like addiction are very, they're not helpful because they separate everything away. Mm. You know, this is right, people, we put them over here. Mm-hmm. They're, they're addicts and we're not like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually drinking heavily is in, in a lot of respects, it is a normal human behavior. It's just taken way past its extreme. I mean, right. if you think about it, everybody wants to, you know, escape a little bit everybody wants to get away from the problems that they have in their life you know why why out like shakespeare that's all he did he helped us to forget about what was going on with our lives for a few hours and get completely absorbed in something else mm-hmm. and the the, the 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 same tendencies that you see in shakespeare you see in people drinking it's just i've never met anybody who um reads 17 Shakespeare plays a night um so yeah you haven't <laughs> that would be uh, that would be pretty hardcore going you yeah, know? Wouldn't I, it? I did um they, they in I live near Oxford uh as you as you said in my intro and they often have these Shakespeare festivals and I can do two or three in a day maybe but so <laughs> that's your limit <laughs> So, so really, the bottom line is, no matter what the vice is for most of us, and I'll, I'll admit my my vice is food, and it always has been. Um, do you feel that these vices, no matter what they are, they are a way that we are all masking maybe a deep-seated or deep-rooted or something that we have shoved down? That's the way that we feel that we can best deal with whatever it may be. Very often it is. And just before I really get into that, I think it's probably worth clarifying. I like the phrase overindulgence. And people then sort of think, oh, you're against cake, Duncan. And I'm not, strictly speaking, against cake. You know, cake done right is indulgence. And there is nothing wrong with indulgence. 
it's overindulgence that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with having a slice of cake on your birthday. There is something wrong with eating five cakes a week, you know? <laughs> yes. it's, a, it's a matter of degrees. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can go all the way back to Aristotle. I mean, he talked about the, uh, the finding the middle ground between temperance and overindulgence. And, and that's that's what life is. You don't want it to be ascetic and like, you don't want to live in a cave, do you? Mm -hmm. um, but then again, you don't want to be a complete and utter glutton. You've got to find the, uh, the, the, the right path between the two. Mm -hmm. So I am not as such against uh, overindulgence. I just think you've, you've kind of got to, you, you've got to find, find the right balance. But in terms of like, are you using that behavior to run away from something? Now, the, I, I've been conducting some research recently about the reasons why people started to drink. And we haven't properly coded all of the responses yet, but it, it's obvious from looking at the raw data. And it's kind of obvious from the, you know, being around the recovery world for long enough that there is a proportion of people and a significant proportion of people that drink because they are attempting to mask unprocessed childhood trauma mm -hmm. now what you'll find with people like that is that sometimes they will stop drinking and they will just start doing something else destructive typically they stop drinking they start eating that's actually quite common that people people stop drinking in a problematic way, start eating in a problematic way because mm. they haven't dealt with the underlying problems Issue, that they right. were trying to deal with in the first place. And that is often around unprocessed childhood trauma. We uh, we found a lot of people talk about um, trauma that's happened to them in, in adulthood, uh, deaths of family members, relationship breakdown, job, business kind of problems, um, a lot of stuff around pregnancy as well. And that again you know that's that trauma and it's typically taken what was a relatively normal moderate or moderate to severe drinking habit and pushed it over the edge mm. um so when when you mentioned earlier that you know you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're realizing i i don't really want to do this anymore uh, did you have someone to go to like what you're doing now or did you just did you quit cold turkey or did you you know were you involved in some program what what happened from that moment that you decided mm, no this has got to end yeah so I mean I mean I'm enormously lucky for a number of reasons and uh when you say did I have somebody I did I was very lucky that um I suppose probably about four years before I stopped drinking, I met this uh, amazing woman. I mean, she was a bit weird and everything, you know, she, uh, she didn't drink, she didn't smoke, she ate chickpeas and did yoga. I mean, very, very <laughs> strange. Uh, but for some reason she hung around. Uh, she must've liked my jokes or something. Anyway, um, she kind of like, like I say, I'm lucky. She is a very enlightened lady and she just sort of like gently pushed me in the right direction and pointed out that certain of my behaviors were probably not that useful or sustainable and she kind of got me into the idea that maybe I wanted to uh, I I should be uh, sort of smartening up my act a little bit so I started off by by stopping smoking because that was the one that was most obviously affecting her she was going to live in my flat and I was going to smoke in my flat that was obviously not 
just something that I could say, oh, well, it's it's me. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've read my great liberal philosophers of the world. I know I can uh, I can harm myself because I am over 18, but uh, I was obviously harming somebody else. So that's when I got into uh, the works of Alan Carr, the easy way stuff. And I read the easy way to stop smoking. And it was easy. It made a, it made a huge amount of sense to me. Um, it kind of spoke to some of the things that I'd done in the past around um, learning things and study skills and basically finding ways of managing your thinking. So that <clears throat> spoke to me hugely. I stopped smoking. I found it easy. I really, really enjoyed it. So when it came to stopping drinking, I pretty much knew what I was going to do because it it was so obvious in what Alan wrote that it was so universal that it could be applied to, to so many things. So it just made sense to kind of apply it to alcohol. So <clears throat> then I found, uh, found drinking, um, you know, I found it very easy to stop drinking. At this point, I think it is only fair to point out that, you know, I had, uh, I was in a committed and loving relationship, which is an enormously supportive thing. I had a lot of friends, uh, you know, a very supportive family. I had a job. I had a roof over my head. I had, um, you know, a degree of self-actualization, self-worth and all of the kind of things that actually make your life good. those are the kind of things that make it much easier for you to stop drinking. So I was in a very lucky position and and many of the people um, who struggle with alcohol, they're not necessarily in that lucky position. So while they can use the sort of cognitive realignment techniques that, that Alan pioneered and have been developed a lot over the years, they can use those in the interim to stop drinking but then there is usually some work to be done around other areas of their life. Um, you know, you need the stability uh, of community and, you know, you just, you need the stability that you need in any kind of life, shelter and food and safety and relationships and love and that kind of thing. So some I, people have to work a lot harder to build that. I mean, I was in a very lucky position, as I say. Well, and, and I, I know exactly what you're saying because uh, my parents were in the same boat. My dad was a, a bit of an alcoholic. And uh, when he met my mom, uh, my mom unfortunately had was raised by a father that was alcoholic and he was abusive mentally and physically to my grandmother. And my, my mother grew up seeing that. And so she saw what the effects of alcohol uh, did in her own family. And so when she met my dad, she basically let him know, you know, uh, this can only go as far as until you stop drinking, because I was raised with this and I don't want a part of it. And it was because of that love for my mom. My dad basically was a, I won't say he quit cold Turkey, but he basically cut, cut it out completely because he loved my mother so much and knew that he wanted something better for his family as well. So I get exactly what you're saying and the power of love and what it can do in with many of our vices that we may have or, or overindulgences. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it, it was absolutely tied up with, with family because my wife had a miscarriage and that was, you know, that was really hard. I mean, it was very hard on her, but I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know how to talk about it with her. I didn't know how to help. And 
and so I, I just ended up drinking uh, and mm. you know that genuinely does not help and no, no. it got to a point where you know our relationship was getting increasingly strained and it sort of became kind of obvious that I was going to have to make this choice and the choice was do I want a child or do I want another drink and uh, I made the right decision you'll be pleased to know <laughs> and uh, yeah our daughter's um seven and a half now and wow uh, seven and a half going on 25 it's of course <laughs> so so you had so through the love and support of your wife and her it her encouraging you uh in ways to become the person that you are now where along this journey did you discover that you not only wanted to help yourself but you wanted to work on helping other people as well see i i mean i i sort of i think that that has always been a part of of who i am i i I I didn't get on with school, as I mentioned earlier, but the thing I absolutely adored when I was a kid was the Scout Association. I got so much. I got so much from it. Literally all of the skills that I have learned that have been genuinely useful in my life. I, I, I started to learn in the Scout Association. And for me, it was an, uh, somewhere where I could actually excel and I could achieve. And I think that that's enormously important that, you know, when I go to school, if I made some effort, I'd get bad grades. And if I didn't make any effort, I'd get bad grades. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that there's no point in putting any effort in if you get the same result. <laughs> exactly. So, however, when I went to Scouts, I they gave me this little book. And if I could run around getting the stuff ticked off, I got a badge. <laughs> right. like, yeah, that's cool. It is awesome. And I, I mean, I still... I still am involved in the Scout Association and I'm very privileged uh, to to help people to understand, you know, to help the leaders to understand the amazing stuff they do for young people. And I, I don't like to tell the young people that they're learning stuff because they're just having fun. They're just out there interacting with their, their peers. You know, they're doing stuff they love. I don't want to break the illusion that they're learning something. But um, for me... You know, the thing that I really learned through the Scout Association was that helping other people, it helps you, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, if you work with somebody to improve their life, it improves their life, but it improves your life as well. Yes. And that's why I, selfishly, why I've tried as much as I can through my life to serve other people because, you know, it, it fundamentally makes me happy. So I, I think that that, that is a, a core part of who I am and stopping drinking simply allowed me to kind of springboard what I was doing. Coupled with the fact that I have basically always been in communication and training and coaching and things like that, it just seemed to me a natural fit to pivot into the area of helping people to stop drinking. I mean, I was doing a lot of um, work with leaders in local government um, before I finally committed to uh, getting into the, the sober coaching. And all I was really doing was helping them to achieve the kind of success that I'd achieved, helping them do it in their own way, not saying do this, be like me, because mm -hmm. it's ridiculous, but helping them to unlock their own potential and achieve the kind of success that that, that they want to achieve. 
And I sort of sat back and thought about it. And it's like, well, if I'm basically helping you to do stuff that I did in the past, the best thing I ever did in my life, apart from getting married and having a child, was getting sober. So why am I not helping people to get sober? Because that's the thing that's brought most joy into my life. I mean, I literally jump out of bed in the morning, you know, because I'm full of energy. I'm just I'm totally focused on what I'm doing. I'm determined to change the world. And I just feel great about everything. And it's like, why would I not share that? No, I would be a terrible person if I kept that to myself, wouldn't I? <laughs> you, you would be. And the world would be missing out on so much, Duncan. I'm telling you. But yes, you're you're absolutely right. Uh that when you have when you know that you are living your 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 passion and your purpose, that is how you feel in the morning. You do want to jump out of bed and you you want to get the day started uh because um it's part of self-esteem and self-pride and self-worth and, and, and just, yes, I totally get that. So you, you are absolutely right. And you are right in the spot where you are supposed to be uh, because that is how we should be. I, that's how I knew I was burning out on teaching when it was like uh, set, you know, hitting the alarm three different times not to get up and then, okay, what excuse can I come up with not to be at school today or, or, you know, and it's like, I shouldn't be feeling that way. So yes, I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. That's how, that's how I felt this morning, getting up on this thankful Thursday when I knew I was going to get to talk with you today. It was like, yeah, I'm going to be talking with Duncan today. How exciting is that? I need to start my day. (laughs) Yeah, that is really good. And I don't want to bring things down, but who was it that invented the snooze button, by the way? They want to be they want to be dealt with. I mean, they are like one of the biggest criminals in the world. They're up there with Hitler, Putin, (laughs) terrible people. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I genuinely I, 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 I think about that quite a lot. You know, it's like, what does that actually say about you? If you just want to like sack it off and go back to bed, it's like that, you know, it's your life. That's why you should be getting out of bed, because, you know, you should be living it. You should be enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Why are you just trying to make it go away? Well, I know that that during the whole COVID um, time span, that's where a lot of people really, I think, had an awakening of whether or not they were truly uh, doing, uh, living their passion and purpose. And I think many people found out this is not ultimately what I wanted to do or want to do. Did you find that during COVID, uh, especially during COVID time, do you think that um, that overindulgence increased or or leveled out? Or wh- what did you find in your field of what was happening during COVID? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a the one industry that did not suffer mm. one little bit from COVID was the alcohol industry. They sort of pretended, didn't they? They said, Mm -hmm. oh, look at us, we're making hand gel. (laughs) No, you're not. You're making money, (laughs) selling misery. That's what you're doing. And they don't like gangbusters, they were selling the beer, you know? And Uh it's it's one of the things that that it did not stop. Um, And Mm -hmm. the statistics are horrific. There's like over a million more people in the UK alone started drinking more than 50 units a week. And really? I don't I don't like to say, well, 
you know, you drink that much, you definitely fit in this category because it is more complicated about than that. It's not simply sure. about how much you yeah. drink. It is a little bit about the way you drink and the way you feel about um, drinking. But if you're drinking 50 units a week, you have a problem. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you do need to do something <laughs> about that. Right. Um, so so now that now that we're getting back to normal, whatever normal is, do you find that uh, there's more people that are realizing that they that they were they overindulged during that time period and now they're wanting to get back on track to kind of where they were or used to be at one point? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I still do a lot of work with smokers and that's like every time it's like oh i started smoking again during covid mm -hmm. like yeah well how did that work out for you did it make the virus go away i don't think so no mm -hmm. um so yes I, I i think a lot of people um you know they started doing stuff that they really didn't want to do during covid um and now they're getting to the point where they're trying to roll it back mm -hmm. i mean there are a you people that actually took the opportunity that lockdown gave them and I, there were a few people that actually got into pretty good shape during covid and i i find it kind of interesting that if you sit down and ask people say why don't you look after yourself better why don't you cook why don't you exercise i mean we all know that we should cook more we should move more mm -hmm. and if you ask a lot of people why they don't do it they'll say oh I don't have the time I'm too busy. And it's like, well, you did though, didn't you? You know, that point where you were furloughed for nine months and you did mm. literally nothing. What did you do? You bought biscuits and watched Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you had the time. So maybe, maybe there's something a little bit more to it than that. Mm -hmm. Maybe, uh, you know, you don't believe you are capable of living a healthy life. Mm. Wow. That and that would be that would be quite the realization if that's really what we what we sat down and really thought about. Are we really doing what's best for us? And most yeah. of us would have to be honest with ourselves and say no. And honestly, those conversations aren't particularly difficult to have. Uh, the problem, as I see it, is the medical profession is not in a position where it's able to have those conversations. Um, it, you know, I've got a lot of sympathy for anybody who works in uh, the National Health Service or indeed, uh, you know, any medical provider, because I, I'm very sure they are working hard. They are working mm -hmm. harder than it is really possible. There is a lot of stress. There is a lot of shortage and they're generally underappreciated. They got a little bit of love during the pandemic, but we've all forgotten about them now yes. again. And, you know, it's just caring, something mm -hmm. that we don't want to do. It's badly paid. We treat people bad who do that. So it's very difficult working in the medical profession. I get that. But so many of the problems that we face as a society come down 100% to lifestyle. Most mm -hmm. heart disease, most diabetes, a huge amount of cancer even is actually generated through the lifestyle that we're living, through the diet that we're eating, through the excessive drinking. And yeah, there are still quite a lot of people smoking, which um, I don't know whether you heard that's quite bad for you too. <laughs> um, so, you know, all of those lifestyle things 
we can change those. And people have been doing amazing things like uh, Dean Ornish and uh, Claude Wellesselstein. They've been doing amazing things about lifestyle interventions, changing people's diets, reversing diabetes, reversing heart disease. You know, they've been doing some amazing stuff, but it's quite intensive. It, it requires people who uh, have... Uh, coaching skills or motivational interviewing skills those kind of skills to actually sit down and talk to people talk through the problems get to grips with the beliefs work out you know where their thought process is and then coming up with a plan to change those it's not complicated but it is relatively intensive and it, it requires people and what's cheaper you just give them a drug that is cheaper Right. So right. that's the solution. And it's, and it's very, instant. Very it's instant. Yeah. I mean, nobody seems to be too bothered about the fact that it doesn't really work, but it is quick. And, um, you know, it is uh, it outperforms a placebo, but not by much. Right. Exactly. So yeah. so you happen to mention that uh, you got into life coaching uh, and through your life coaching, I'm 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 assuming you still do that. Is that is that correct? Yeah, no, I like to call myself a high performance sober coach, but only because I think I'll get paid more if I do. And I like it because it sounds different than anybody else. So through that program, when someone chooses to work with you, what what's kind of a the essence of of what you cover? Yeah, so my my basic methodology comes from. Uh, cognitive realignment which is sort of a part of cognitive behavior therapy which your listeners probably have heard of um and what i do is i help people to get to grips with their beliefs so everybody believes stuff about alcohol so most people believe it helps you deal with stress it helps you relax uh, it makes you more fun at parties and it makes women think you're really really attractive <laughs> those tend to be the most common beliefs about alcohol and what we do is we sit down and we discuss them and we bring them out into the air we bring them out into the open because a lot of people don't realize that their actions are very much dictated by their beliefs. Um, and that's been borne out uh, across a lot of research into alcohol, that people's expected, that what they expect to get from alcohol dictates how much they drink. Mm. It correlates very neatly what you expect from alcohol with the amount you drink. So we, we get into those beliefs. We question them. You know, we ask, are they true? And are they serving you? Are they helping you to get where you want to be in life? Are they helping you to be the best version of yourself? If they are, then great. Keep them, you know. Mm -hmm. But if they aren't, we pack them full of Semtex and blow them to kingdom come. <laughs> and once we've done that kind of work to get to grips with, with your beliefs, we start to think about thoughts. Um, and... So people use the word craving quite a lot. I think it's one of those, again, one of those unhelpful words that, that makes people think it's something different. Cravings are just thoughts. That's all they are. So mm. we get to grips with, with how you think about alcohol, why you think in certain ways, some of the things that you think about, a little bit of education. I try not to dump too much neurobiology on people, but I do like a, a, a neurotransmitter. It does does lighten my day anyway so we just go into kind of like how your thoughts work and how you can make them work for you i mean you can't get rid of your thoughts but you can be more aware of them and therefore you can manage them and you can point them in the direction that you actually want to do once we've done the work around thoughts honestly the action bit is easy 
You know, mm. so you change your beliefs, you change your thoughts, and then the actions just naturally follow. And of course, that means not drinking is relatively straightforward. Um, the problem that most people have is they try to do it the other way around. They just stop. And then mm. they hope the thoughts and the beliefs catch up. And they rarely, rarely do. But that, I mean, that is just a snapshot of the very short term kind of stuff that I do. Sure. What I like to work with people over a longer period. I, and the research uh, supports it. And the one of the things that annoys me is nobody really in the sober communities ever talks about this. What happens when you stop drinking typically, and you know, it's different for everybody, but typically you get a big boost when you stop because you're no longer poisoning yourself. You know, you feel mm -hmm. a lot better. Mm -hmm. You know, your sleep improves, you have more energy, your concentration, your focus sharpen. You generally just feel better about life. But inevitably, there is something in your life that you were ignoring whilst you were drinking, whether that's emotional or whether that's simply procedural, whether that's about your relationships or about your job or just the washing up. You know, mm -hmm. you were ignoring something. And as soon as you kind of your life gets back, back, back to normal and you get over the kind of like the, the positive, the, they call it the pink glow, which I think indicates what that there are an awful lot more women in the sober community than men. <laughs> but once that initial kind of bonus sort of seems to fade a bit, you're presented with all of these problems and you've got to do something about it. And that tends to tends to make people kind of have this dip between three and nine months after they stop drinking, they have this dip. Mm. And that's the period where I think it's so important to support people through and to help them look at all of their life. You know, mm -hmm. drinking, it's just, it's just a small thing. Mm -hmm. And if you don't deal with the rest of it, then people will, they'll start gambling. They'll start doom scrolling Facebook. They'll start overworking. They'll go to the gym all the time or they'll just eat mm -hmm. junk food. Uh, they just basically transfer to a different behavior right. and behave in the same way that they were drinking, but just around something else. So we're really super focused on that period of three to nine months, because what you find is if you can get past that dip, then it goes up and it keeps going up. And the research is really, really clear on this. They've tracked people over decades and the, 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 it flattens off. It doesn't like shoot up, but it keeps going up for 40 years. I'm literally talking to somebody earlier who uh, who stopped drinking 40 years ago. Still enjoys each day slightly more than the last. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I have a, a friend that she was just she just posted, uh, I think it was last week or the week before that uh, she was celebrating her seventh. 17th year of sobriety and i know that when i have talked with her uh, she still attends aa meetings because she needs that constant reinforcement and support uh, just as a reminder that she she is living a better life now than she was before and so uh so to know that you know just because you hear somebody say oh well i'm i'm sober now it is a lifelong journey i'm learning from her it, it isn't something that just goes away if you really want to, there's going to always be, you're always going to need some kind of a support system. And I think that's with any overindulgence to know that you've got those people there or that resource there. I think that is what has truly helped her more than anything. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's one of my favorite AA expressions is geological sober time. That's uh, <laughs> like when, when you've done enough, that's how they refer to it. And I just, I think that's cute. But no, I'm community is so incredibly important. And that's something that comes up time and again in the research that we do. You know, the importance of finding a group of people who are like you, think like you, have mm -hmm. similar values and ideals to you. And that's something that I've noticed. A lot of people expect that to be a group of people who are sober. And that works very well. I've met plenty of people who, you know, still going to AA after 17 years. Mm -hmm. You find the same in um, other kind of recovery fellowships as well. And, and that's great. And if it works for you, that is brilliant. But it doesn't actually have to be that way. What a lot of the superstars do is they find other areas of their life where the people that they're spending time with, they're not necessarily sober, but the activity that that friendship group revolves around doesn't involve alcohol. So that can be a, a lot of people get really into business and they do a lot of networking and networking in general, uh, you know, doesn't involve alcohol. So they spend a lot of time with business people talking about business stuff, which is generally quite a sober pursuit. You find people that get into sport. You have to be a bit careful with sport because some sports are very much uh, related to alcohol and mm. most sport Watching yes. sport is is always related to alcohol, yes. uh, I seem to find. But um, playing of sport, it can be a bit tricky. But in general, when you're playing it, you are sober. Yes. Um, or you find education is another one. A lot of people go madly into education, do all of the qualifications, study, you know, indulge their passion for learning, which, which is great. But it, again, it puts you into that community, that group of people. Nobody turns up to adult educational classes drunk. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Some of us want to probably, but we don't. <laughs> So I know that you you have your podcast. Where, at what point did you you decide? Uh, you know, hey, you know, I want to I want to take this to an to another level, and I really want to be able to get this message out to more people on a different platform. So where did you come up with the idea uh, of doing your your podcast? So it was sort of an accident i started to uh interview these sober superstars because i, I just, i'm just genuinely obsessed with what is it that keeps you sober what are the the behaviors the products the mindset the communities that these these people are existing in and, and how are they doing it and it is my hope to synergize all of this and you know put it all together into one package um so i was interviewing somebody and we had an amazing conversation and I've been scribbling my notes and uh you know the load of really 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 great stuff came out and he just went it's a shame we didn't record that wasn't it and I was like oh yeah you're quite right that was stupid why am I just sitting I like and you know I was interviewing people on zoom as well uh like this one I actually we happened to be in the coffee shop together but you know it was like well yeah, that was a great conversation. Why didn't I record that? So uh, then I just moved all of my interviews onto Zoom, uh, record them all now and call it a podcast. So mm -hmm. it, it, it it's kind of my homework, but people seem to enjoy listening to it. And it's called Flat Pack Sober because we always get into 
this is a, a, a question that I ask a lot of people that I work with. How do you build IKEA furniture? I'm assuming, Patty, that you know IKEA. You're familiar with their brand. Yes, very, very much so. I love IKEA. Okay, so you're supposed to be asking the questions and I've totally hijacked the podcast now. No, no, go for it, dude. How do, how do you build flat pack sober? How do you build flat pack furniture? Well, I'll tell you what, it really depends on uh, the instructions that come with whatever it was that I bought, because uh, sometimes A and B do connect correctly, and I'm able to put that that bolt and nut together beautifully. And then other times for other instructions, I cannot figure out which is A, which is B, and uh, oh gosh, I'm going to have to re-drill through the hole in C because this is not lining up correctly. So, but, but I still go and I, I get the Swedish meatballs and I love to go through there and get decorating ideas. Not that I'm a decorator, but I love to get ideas and they have some wonderful specials on stuff. And I end up buying things that I usually really don't need. It's just something that I want. But so that's my love hate relationship with Ikea. Oh, that's, I uh, know that you like uh, that, that. Yeah, that, that that speaks to a lot of the stuff we talk about on the podcast. But I just want to return to the the furniture. So you'd start with the instructions. Do you always like read the instructions properly and go through? No, I don't. That and that's part of the problem because I'm thinking, hey, well, here's a picture on the box. I can just look at the picture and I can oh. figure this out. <laughs> so you just get stuck in. You just like, and and then once I get to the open, let's get started. That's what I, yes, because I figure I can do this. I'm a woodworker. I know how these things work. And then when I said, when A and B is not matching up for whatever reason, I guess I'm going to have to resort to the instructions now. So is it fair to say that that kind of summarizes your approach to learning things, maybe even to life that you just get stuck in, figure it out whilst you're going along? Uh, it depends on the situation, but many times, yes. And that's where I learned some of my my biggest lessons. Yeah, so that's what we call the dynamo. That's one of the, I call them sober styles, but they're really just learning uh, styles, which you've probably heard of. They're based on the work of David Cole. But um, it's that that way of approaching things by getting involved, getting stuck in, doing it. And the reason why I like to ask people like that when I'm working with them one-to-one -one or on the podcast is because I think people do approach stuff in different ways. And the problem with the internet is there's just a ton of information um, mm -hmm. on there. And you, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. And you do one of two things uh, when you're overwhelmed. You either just give up or you, you sort of stop actually processing stuff. You stop thinking about it and you start reacting in a very emotional way and you just sort of pick the thing that seems to be easiest in the moment which uh, mm -hmm. invariably ends up being alcohol or a slice of pizza or something like that mm -hmm. so what we try and do is we try and get to grips with the where all of the guests are coming from so that when you're listening to it you can say well yeah i i see why that works for you but it's not going to work for me because i am not a dynamo i am the brain i like to sit down with a cup of tea i read the instructions cover to cover with a highlighter twice before i started oh so you know, you've got to know you've got to know who you are and you've got to know who mm -hmm. the guest is. And then yes. sometimes you're thinking, wow, you're very much different to me. So I understand that you're different to me and therefore I can take some of what you're saying 
because it's not naturally what I would do. And sometimes it's, well, you're different to me. I can just ignore you. <laughs> now, I, I've noticed uh, by checking out your, your podcast, during the month of October, you have a special term for it. Share with everybody what your, your term in the month of October is when it comes to uh, being uh, sober. Yeah, well, I mean, it gets called a lot of things that you like go sober for October, October, Stoptober. Um, I didn't invent any of them. Uh, I have to say it's um, it's a lot of different charities do these kind of like months where you're um, ideally want to stop drinking. Dry January is the, um, uh, the, the most common one. You can pretty much find one for every month if you try hard enough there's okay. there's sober spring which lasts the or f for three months um dry july that rhymes doesn't oh, the okay. really good december one but i can't remember it but mm -hmm. um it's one of those things that uh we sort of pick up on a little bit on the socials because uh it's some people focus on it some people talk about it personally i prefer september as that time to kind of reset and um restart things i think after the summer holidays you're getting back you know I, I i like to spend time with my uh my family which is another way of saying i'm just quite lazy and i don't like working during august <laughs> so i take a lot of time off during august um I, I, you know everything just goes a little bit to pot so i need that kind of like that motivation to reset get back into my good exercise habits proper mm -hmm. diet you know actually doing some work occasionally that kind of thing so right. for me september is a is a better time but you know i we we take what we are given and um october is one of those times that people do uh stop drinking in increasingly larger numbers and you know, I like to be a part of that discussion because I think there's something very beneficial about not drinking for 30 days. It resets your dopamine system. So it gives your brain a real chance to recover at a neurological level. Um, so it can be a great springboard for deeper change. If you just stop drinking, um, you know, for 30 days and then don't do anything else, it's not going to work. You know, right. if you just do dry January and then you have damp February, you're going to have soaking wet March. Kind of thing. <laughs> so you've got to see it as not yes. simply that those 30 days, those 30 days are a great way of starting the change, whether that is to continue roll with the abstinence. I meet a lot of people that do that. They stopped drinking for dry January and forgot to start again because they were mm -hmm. just enjoying it. Right. But also I think there, there there's, you know a, a lot of good science about how that 30-day reset is, is great but only if you've got a really solid plan about how you're going to drink in a sensible moderate low risk kind of way well and it goes back to what you mentioned earlier is that you know if you decide to have dry january uh, that's great for 30 days but have you in that 30 days also been dealing with what was creating you to drink in the first place or whatever your overindulgence was. And that's where working with somebody like you, where you can discover what that was, you know, you know, you want to be sober for 30 days, but how about let's take it further by really discovering what is the, the root of all of that drinking in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that gets to the, the very heart of it. I, 
far too many people think think that stopping drinking is the meal but it's not the meal it's simply one of the ingredients mm-hmm. yeah exactly um do you have you found that when you after you have interviewed a a, a sober superstar and it, the the podcast has gone out do you find that more people get in touch with you that want to get sober because now they've heard this famous person talk about you know their journey with all of it or do you find that it makes no difference who your who your guest is so what what we find with the podcast is it, it is more aimed at people who are already sober and we okay. promote it within the sober community and it, gotcha. it is it is much more about helping them to continue uh on the path and i i found this kind of like weird thing with the sober sphere that um i i work with people after they've got sober um to you know find the way to the life that they really really want and I can almost tell you what method you use to stop drinking by the problems that you come to me with mm. because if you look at the, the the four main ways people stop drinking there's cognitive realignment which is uh, you know the the work around Alan Carr the easy way and we kind of charted that that territory but Annie Grace at the moment she wrote a book called This Naked Mind she's probably doing most in the space at the moment that's the kind of beliefs thoughts and then your actions kind of model there's the 12 step the fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous um, you know where you where you're going to to group meetings a lot of group meetings Mm -hmm. and you're working through those those 12 steps uh, there's kind of more of a therapeutic approach whereby you will engage with some sort of therapy that will either be some of the time, uh, probably more often than not, that is some sort of talking therapy, some sort of cognitive psychiatric therapy, which mm-hmm. uh, comes from the head. But you also meet people who um, really, really develop a kind of yoga practice and that's much more kind of of an embodiment therapy that's much more kind of bottom up from from their their body i was talking to a therapist recently who um uses havening and he's uh, he's had quite a lot of success with people um stopping drinking um and he argues with me because he doesn't like the language i use but i think of that as kind of like a bottom up therapy and what you do that that therapy it removes the kind of the the reasons why you think you were drinking uh, it it deals with the underlying problems and then you find that the, the the drinking kind of naturally falls away or people often have you know a realization that they're they're working this hard on developing themselves and making themselves the best version of themselves you know during the week and then on the weekend they're trying to poison themselves mm-hmm. um so uh that's uh that's kind of the therapeutic approach but there's also natural recovery again something that people don't talk about an awful lot but plenty of people just stop mm-hmm. you know and my um my friend rj uh calls it actually i'm not sure this is a polite <laughs> this is a polite podcast i can't tell you what rj calls it but it's stubborn and then the second world's quite rude but that's the that's his method of stopping just basically 
blockheadedness and mm -hmm. and a surprisingly large amount of people do actually get sober that way um and they all have their advantages but they also all have their disadvantages so i tend to work with people to kind of fill in the blanks and to mm -hmm. to help them find a way to design the kind of life that they're after so really with your with your podcast that is another community another support system for people who are getting either getting sober or have been sober and also with everything that you just named off you know not as we've we've talked before not one size fits all and that's what's so great about all these different um uh, resources that are out there for people because uh, someone that the gentleman that you were saying you kind of debate back and forth about you know working with people you know someone could probably work very well with you and not so much with him or vice versa so that's great that there are that the variety of resources that everybody can find their their niche uh, of who they want who they need and want to work with that will be most beneficial to them. And actually, RJ and I are such a great example. I mean, we we sort of come from a very similar standpoint, but RJ is very much more, you know, in touch with his emotions and very, very focused on that aspect of it. I'm a bit more cerebral. I'm a bit more cognitive. I'm a bit, I'm more focused on the mental aspect of it. So, um, yeah, we de absolutely do. Uh, you know suit different people um however if if you don't like bad jokes you ain't gonna get on with either of us fair warning ahead right <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and i think you know one of the things that, that that is really important to me is to validate people's experience because i think anybody who has walked down the path anybody who's got sober you know they have something to add to the discussion and you know to to marginalize them and to say, well, you didn't do that right because you didn't do it the way we did it. You know, I think that's that's reprehensible. And right. I, I want to, uh, you know, with the podcast, I want to expand people's understanding because I think knowledge is a really important part of recovery. It's mm -hmm. one of those factors that is really, really protective. Uh, and too many people get siloed and it doesn't just happen in the recovery business. You know, it happens in psychology um in general you know there was a point where all of the psychoanalysts were throwing rocks at all of the behaviorists and they were having an argument with the humanists and nobody could quite agree and luckily as a field psychology's kind of grown up a little bit and it's sort of developed this idea of of integrative uh, therapy um but i suspect the recovery industry it hasn't quite got there yet and you meet a lot of people who will badmouth other recovery systems. Mm -hmm. Some of them do it from a legitimate business point of view. You know, they're mm -hmm. badmouthing everybody else because they're trying to sell themselves. And I don't mind that quite so much. But you like, you know, if you, there is no point in rubbishing AA, really, you know, it's free. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, and different strokes for different folks. Like we said, one size does Absolutely. not fit all. Absolutely. At, at the moment, I'm really into uh, recovery dharma, which is the Buddhist recovery uh, mm. um, movement. And th there is this huge irony in it that, like, if you ever ask about AA, I will say that I've got a lot of time and respect for AA. It does some things very, very well, 
But there are objections that people give to AA, and one of them is that it is religious. It does involve giving yourself up to a higher power. Now, many people in AA would argue with me about that and tell me that that doesn't matter. But for me, it would have put me off. It definitely would have put me off. So I've spent years saying that, and now I go to these uh, Buddhist. Buddhist recovery meetings, and uh, it doesn't put me off. So uh, who knows? We are we are funny individuals, us humans. It's a full circle moment for you, huh, Duncan? <laughs> well, I did an entire wheel of dharma, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> hey, what would you say is the best uh, piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? The best piece of advice. Um, I think one of the things that that really sticks with me is learning to value myself. And there's a guy who I've got a huge amount of time for, a leadership coach, executive coach, real expert in the field called Michael Anderson. And um, he has on more than one occasion pulled me off for not valuing myself and not standing in the praise that I get and like minimizing stuff and saying, oh, you know, it's just anybody would have done that in my situation. It's nothing much. So I think that's that that's been a really big change recently that I, I've I've got a lot better at um, you know, accepting people's thanks and gratitude and positive wishes for what it is and right. um you know validating that and we had this discussion and i was minimizing the fact that you know one of my clients had said to me look duncan if it wasn't for you i wouldn't be alive today and that's like that you know <laughs> that's just about the nicest thing anyone can ever say to you yes. and minimizing that minimizing any of the praise or the positive statements you get you just you know, it, it's a little bit ridiculous. So um, I guess on behalf of Michael Anderson, I, I will tell everybody to stand in the fullness of their power and accept the, the praise they get because they do deserve it. Because people people generally don't notice the stuff you do. So if they've gone out of the way to notice that you've done a good job, you deserve it. Yep, most definitely. And then say thank you to that person. Because as we're oh, learning- yeah, yeah, no, gratitude, gratitude, big fan. Because as we're learning, there, there's so much negative out in the world that when somebody is pay, paying you a compliment, I mean, say thank you to that person because then that that reinforces that it is a good thing to share those compliments with other people. So um, what would you say that right now at this point in your life, are you passionate about personally and professionally? So I've had a bit of a, a change of focus uh, in the last few months. I used to believe that the way to reduce the harm of alcohol in society was by working with people who were drinking at a dangerous level. And I thought, you know, if I can just spend my time working with enough people, help enough people who are at that problem level to get off the booze, then I will make the world a better place. But what I've realized is that actually most of the harm that is done by alcohol is not done at the edge, the people who are drinking the most. It's actually done in the middle. The people who are drinking at a moderate, moderate to severe level, that's where most of the harm is, simply because there are so many people that are drinking at that level. Mm. They might not be doing 
quite the same level of harm as somebody who's drinking very dangerously. But they are impacting on their job. They are impacting on their family. They are impacting on their friends. They're, they're, they're reducing their abilities in concentration, energy, focus. They're turning down the volume on their joy. And, mm. and that is a tragedy. So what I'm trying to do more at the moment is find ways of working with other people so that we can we can get to those people who are drinking at moderate and uh, moderate to severe levels to help them deliver brief interventions to use well accepted scientifically validated diagnostic tools to make a difference to those people to help them find a way to either moderate their drinking to get down to that low risk category or to stop drinking completely if that's the right thing for them to do so the, the the mission has got a bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Very good. So what would you say right now is your purpose uh, per, uh, personally and professionally? Personally, you know, I, I am so aware of my daughter getting bigger. Like sometimes you, you, you turn around and she's three inches taller and you're like, how did that happen? <laughs> And uh, <laughs> that's the, the funny thing about having kids, right? You, people, yeah. people say to you, how old's your daughter? And I go, oh, seven and a half. And they all say, that's a nice age. They've been saying that's a nice age for the last seven and a half years. <laughs> and it is a good age, you know, and I do love her. And I know I'm always going to enjoy spending time with her. But I, I am so aware that, that these moments are precious and these moments are fleeting and mm -hmm. i just got to make the most of them and spend spend the time with her and you know i can write the next book later you know mm -hmm. but i can't pick her up from school for that much longer because soon yeah. she's gonna not want to walk with her dad anymore so um personally uh you know it is it is about making the most of this time and spending it with my family and you know, doing stuff that in, enriches all of us and, and that we enjoy. Professionally, you know, like I said, I'm very focused on reducing the harm caused by alcohol. At least that's what I tell everybody. The truth is I want to destroy the alcohol industry. I think it's terrible. I think mm. it's an environmental nightmare. I think it's an economic nightmare. I think it's harming people. I think it needs to go. Um, so what I want to do is kind of build an army of sober warriors to take down the drinks industry. And once we've done that, we'll probably, uh, you know, end smoking, sort out climate change, and then we'll probably really get started. Exactly. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? And then just keep going from there. Well, and that leads into the my next question for you, which is perfect. What do you consider to be your superpower? Ooh, um, see, I think the thing that I do is I do the things that most people don't like doing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's until I let the, the listeners in on a little secret, it's quarter to 10 at night where I am at the moment. And I would argue that the vast majority of people would consider it to be completely unreasonable to be on a podcast at quarter to 10 at night. Um, yeah, particularly when they were talking about spending enjoyable quality time with their family. I spent the afternoon with my daughter. so oh, uh, It's all good. <laughs> chuck that in there. But um, I've been doing this uh, business accelerator recently and um, I, I've been talking to people and 
you know, they just go, oh, I'm too busy to do the work. And it's like, well, why are you doing the course? You're too busy to do the work. You know, for me, just, it doesn't make sense. Right. I, I go at it like a rhino. Really? You know, I stick my, yeah. I stick my tusk down and I charge. And that is a pretty rare thing. I, that most people are just unprepared to do the kind of work required to, um, to change the world. Everybody knows what they need to do, but very few people are actually prepared to do it. Mm -hmm. um so how would you say that you're living your best life or as i like to say living your best dash yeah i, I mean for me it was it, it it always has been for the last decade um it has just been about getting out of my own way you know mm -hmm. the biggest the biggest drag on my success and you know living that fulfilling life you know it was smoking it was drinking it was eating and kind of like moving forward from that, um, it, it's, it seems more subtle, but it's the same thing. I used to get in my own way a lot around emotions and around relationships. Um, I get in my own way sometimes around um, the beliefs I have around money and around, you, you know, the, the way things should be done. And actually stripping that back, um, I think, you know, that's what, what, what has helped me to live my my best life and if if i was gonna kind of really share a message with people i think we underestimate the value of quitting you know mm -hmm. we always think of quitting as a bad word but it's right. not quitters win and they win for the simple reason that society would have you believe that if you have a problem you need to add something if you've got a headache you need to add some paracetamol some ibuprofen if you're mm -hmm. feeling sad you need to go and do some shopping mm -hmm. you know um if you're uh, if you need to relax you need to add alcohol but the, the, the thing is none of those things actually help what what helps is taking stuff away so what is causing the headache if you're hammering yourself in the head with a hammer every day the solution is not paracetamol it's to stop hitting yourself in the head if you're drinking too much coffee if you're dehydrated then the solution is not paracetamol it's to take out the dehydration take out mm -hmm. the uh the the coffee and again if you're miserable the solution is not to go and buy stuff not to add more stuff because actually the weight of all of your possessions is probably part of the reason why you're feeling miserable anyway removing it is what helps you to succeed so um i think the the real power in in life is subtraction not addition mm. and I, I hope that i can uh, get that cross to people once my daughter's grown up a little bit and i've got some more time to do some uh, writing that's that's and then, then that's watch out right question. hey are there any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you would like to share with our audience yeah yeah i mean the thing that i really you know i kind of hinted at it when i was talking about michael but I, if there's one thing i'd like the world to know it is that you are enough you know you are complete you are whole you do not need anything else you do not need alcohol. You do not need junk food. You never have. You actually have within you everything that you need to live a full, fulfilling, meaningful, purpose-driven, passionate life. And, uh, you know, yeah, you are enough. Get wow. it written on a T-shirt. I, I love it. I think we'll, we'll that's what we'll we'll go into business. We'll start that T-shirt and, and we'll sell, sell them all over the world, Duncan. What do you say? Well, I don't think we should sell them. I think we should just just giving away wear them 
There you go. Not even oh. give them away. We oh, should go around shoving them, right? them on people. There we go. You know? All right, here you go. Put this on. I love it. Yeah, slightly over the top, <laughs> scary way. <laughs> well, Duncan, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really have enjoyed having you and uh, sharing all of uh, the things about you, your challenges, your obstacles, and how you have worked through all of them and the support that you provide for other people. It's been a delight having you here today. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you. I mean, it has been a blast. I did. I promised you a bumpy ride, didn't I? You did. And you did not disappoint at all. Um, hey, and speaking of which, I know that there's going to be several people here that are saying, I want to get in touch with this guy. So how can people get in touch with you? So I am pretty easy to find if you can spell my surname. So it's Baskaran Brown. Baskaran Brown. Stick something like that into the Internet and I, I usually come up top. So baskrambrown.com is my website. There's a ton of resources on there. Um, there's a couple of quizzes you can do to assess your drinking or to find your sober style. Uh, you find the podcast on there as well. Um, the podcast is called Flat Pack Sober. Uh, you could you could Google that. You will um, find us flatpacksober.com. Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on LinkedIn. And if any of your listeners uh, want to connect with me, um, feel free to connect. Send me a message and I will send you a link to my last book, Get Over Indulgence. Uh, you can you can have a link for the PDF or the EPUB book that will work on your Kindle or the audiobook if you'd prefer. Um, I'd love to send them all a physical copy, but unfortunately the British Postal Service sucks and <laughs> nothing ever gets out of out of Britain. It always, every time I send something to somebody abroad, it, it either disappears or comes back with not known at this address. Um, so unfortunately it would have to be uh, an electronic version, but you know, connect with me, follow me, uh, DM me, and I'll, I'll happily share those links with you. And for those of you that have been following along with uh, Rediscovering Your Passion and Purpose with Patty, you know that right now, once you finish this episode, if you go to the description, whether you're watching it on YouTube or one of our 10 uh, platforms, podcast platforms, you can see in the description those links that Duncan just mentioned. Go to the link, click on it, and you're going to be able to get direct access to him. And uh, Duncan, as I said once before, thank you for your time especially over where you are right now at late in the evening. I really appreciate this time and appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Well, for all of you out there listening, remember to subscribe and follow this podcast and invite your family and friends to also subscribe to it as well. And you know what? While you're at it, go ahead and hit that five-star rating and go ahead and also write a review. That would be awesome. Don't forget to check out my website at www.pathwayswithpatty.org and sign up for a Zoom chat with me or to get my Pathway to a New Beginning Roadmap. So until we meet again, continue to live your best dash and know that life's an adventure and I want you to enjoy the journey because your life matters. Thank you and God bless you all.